Thank you for that wonderful reminder as we come before the Word today. Our hope is in Jesus. Before we turn to our text this morning, um, I want to spend a little bit of time of, refu- of reviewing the human author of the text that we've been studying. We return to our series, Precious and Magnificent Promises, through the book of Second Peter. So the author is the Apostle Peter, and I feel like it would be very helpful for us uh, to understand some context that he's going to refer to in his text, uh, into the text that we'll read this morning. Of course, uh, Simon Peter, he's a follower of Jesus. He's writing this letter uh, to us or to the church from Rome. He says he's, uh, he describes in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 1 that he is writing a message to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So this is not just for the insiders, this is for all. This is for everyone who claims Jesus as Savior. Peter was a faithful follower of Jesus. He was a consequential leader in the early church. And you can understand that even before uh, the canon of the New Testament, um, if Peter was saying it, people would listen. They wanted to know what he had to say. Additionally, he makes clear in this letter, and he'll make it clear in the text this morning, that he recognized that uh, his life is, um, uh, is coming to a close. It's coming to a conclusion. So these are essentially final words in 2 Peter from the apostle um, on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in, uh, so just want to refer back. Luke chapter 9, uh, we're told of a particular day. Y'all, y'all remember this day from studying in Scripture. Whenever Jesus and the disciples are out, they feed the 5,000. And then the scripture says, Luke says, that uh, Jesus steals away. He's praying. And the disciples have gathered near. And in the shadow of that incredible miracle where he feeds 5,000 with just a couple loaves, uh, a couple fish and a few loaves of bread. um, In the shadow of that moment, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, so who are people saying that I am? You know, because you got, you got to imagine that there's a little bit of a rumor mill started. People are speculating. They're saying, this is incredible. I mean, we've heard some good teachers, but look at what he just did. Perhaps they have relatives and friends who have been healed by Jesus. He's got to be something more than just a man, just another rabbi. So he asks, and the disciples report back. Well, some say, you're John the Baptist. Others say, you're Elijah or some other prophet from old who's been resurrected and walking around today. And then Jesus makes it very personal, and he says, now, who do you Say that I am. And the Apostle Peter speaks up first, of course. He says, you are the Christ of God. Peter had no doubt in his mind, Jesus is not just a mere mortal. He's not just a prophet. He was the Son of God. And then Jesus begins prophesying about um, his coming, his pending death, that he'll be arrested, he'll be crucified. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to take up your own cross. And then he talks about how, uh, what do you want to inherit? The things this world offers or the things that you find in the kingdom of heaven? The things that are eternal. And then he says to them, and let me read to you from Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read to you in verse 27 here. Where the text says to us, says, but I say to you truthfully, this is Jesus speaking. There are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now I've read that verse before and I thought, well, what does he mean? Because I know that all of the disciples die before, well, Christ still hasn't returned. And so how are they going to see the coming of the kingdom? What did Jesus mean here when he said that? Did he get confused or is this a figurative comment that he's making? Well, he answers the question. In the very next verse of Luke chapter 9, verse 28, it says, Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James, and they went up to the mountain to pray. 
And so just three close disciples, Jesus begins to pray. Luke says that all of a sudden, he becomes, Jesus begins to transfigure during his prayers. His face becomes um, different. It says his clothes become white. He begins emanating light. Now, as you can imagine, Peter, James, and John have dozed off to sleep while Jesus is praying. Seems to be a habit of theirs. So here they've fallen asleep, and then they are stirred. They were woken up. And they see Jesus in this moment of transfiguration. And there with Jesus is Moses and Elijah. And they're speaking in this moment. I mean, you can imagine they're overwhelmed. In fact, I would say they are eyewitnesses of majesty in this moment. That's what Peter, that's how he's going to describe it. They see the coming of the kingdom of God right there on this mountain. And then Moses and Elijah begin to leave. Peter says, no, this is great. We need to stay here. What if we build a tabernacle here, one for Moses, one for Elijah, then one for you? Now, Jesus just said, you're the son of God. You're the one sent by God. But he put him on the same plane as the, as the lawgiver and as the prophet. And so in that moment, it's, it, God speaks. All of a sudden, sends a cloud and envelops them, is what uh, Luke's gospel says. And then from the cloud, the Lord speaks. And he says to them in verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus is no mortal. He's not just some prophet. He's not just a lawgiver, a messenger from God. He is God. He is God's son. And as you study through the gospel, there are all sorts of events that you think, I imagine that moment never left the disciples. Well, for me, I think this one about Peter, James, and John. How could they ever forget what it was like to be up there and this transfiguration that's so hard for our minds to comprehend, this incredible moment just for the three of them, and then hearing God's voice, seeing Moses, seeing Elijah. It had to have marked Peter, James, and John. They were the ones that um, I believe Jesus spoke about in verse 27. Whenever he said, there are some of you who will not die before you see the coming of the kingdom of God. They saw it right there. They saw him in all his glory there on the mountain. Now, we know what happened to Peter after this. He continued to serve um, the Lord during uh, the Lord's earthly ministry. And then, of course, he was there. He witnessed Jesus' arrest, the betrayal, um, the crucifixion. He was there when the women came and said the tomb is empty. He ran to the tomb. He walked into it and saw Jesus was not there on the first day of the week after his death. Saw that Jesus was not there where he had been buried. And then he went and gathered back with the disciples. And he was there when their whole lives totally changed. That despair that they experienced was um, pushed away by this inextinguishable hope as Jesus, the resurrected Lord, walked into the room. Peter's in a precarious situation with Jesus because, remember, he had denied Jesus following that, that arrest. Denied him three times. He's filled with regret, and it seems like he needs something to work out this closeness, to be restored back into the Lord's good graces. Well, the very end of John's gospel, a few days after Jesus' resurrection, the scripture says that uh, Peter and the disciples are out fishing one night. Most of them are there. They're, it's almost as if they're returning to their work. What do we do now? He's gone, you know. He hadn't ascended yet, but Jesus wasn't with them every moment. In fact, John's gospel says this is just the third time they saw him after the, his resurrection. So they're like, I guess we'll try fishing. So they go fishing in the sea, and they can catch nothing. In fact, that morning from the shoreline, somebody calls to them about 100 yards away. They don't recognize the person. They says, hey, 
you haven't caught any fish, have you? And they yell back, no. They say, well, why don't you throw the nets on the other side of the boat? And so they do. They throw the nets on the other side of the boat, not knowing who this person is. And sure enough, they catch more fish than they could pull in. It was overwhelming. I love this chapter of Scripture. It just really brings the narrative alive. As John says to Peter, he says, that's got to be Jesus. And then Peter, I mean, are you surprised? He leaps out of the boat. I wonder if he thinks he could have walked on the water. But he leapt out of the boat. And he starts swimming to the shoreline because he's going to get there to see Jesus. The rest of them bring the boat in, bring the fish. Jesus has already built a little fire there. He says, bring the fish, let's have breakfast. And so uh, they uh, cook the fish there, have this sweet fellowship. And then the Lord turns to Peter. And he says to Peter, Simon, do you love me more than you love these? Well, this is that moment of restoration. So it's kind of an awkward moment. Peter's trying to figure out what to say. He says, well, Lord, you know. I love you. And Jesus says to him, well, then tend my lambs. And he says to him a second time, Peter, do you love me? And then Peter responds to him. And he says, of course, you you know that. I I don't even need to answer that question. I love you. And he says, then shepherd my sheep. And then a third time, Simon, do you love me? And Peter, it stings on that third time. But he he says, Lord, you know everything. I can't hide a thought from you. You know I love you. And he says, tend my sheep. And then the Lord speaks this prophecy, really, I believe, over Peter. Um, in verse, chapter 21, verse 18, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. John comments here in the next verse, Jesus is prophesying about Peter's death. And he's telling him, it's when you're going to be an old man. And you're going to be led astray, and your arms are going to be stretched out. Now, the scriptures don't describe to us how Peter died. But there's a really strong tradition in the church, um, and, and almost completely verifiable, that Peter was crucified. But uh, not wanting to be crucified like the Lord, they crucified him upside down. He stretched out his arms. He was led away. That little prophecy from Jesus revealed to Peter he was immortal until God had completed the task that he was going to do in him. So Peter began to preach boldly. He, he spoke in places where nobody else was bold enough to speak. And then he was uh, persecuted for it. He was arrested. In fact, Herod was going to have him killed. Acts 12 says he was going to have him killed. And so that night he's in prison, and Peter's sleeping. How do you sleep when you know you're going to be killed the next day? Well, it's because he knew I'm immortal until God calls me home. So if he calls me home today, then that, that's it. He fell asleep, but the Lord rescued him that night. And then now Peter has been taken to Rome, and uh, he's led the church. He's served well. He's made mistakes along the way, but he loves the Lord, and he longs for these lambs to love the Lord like him. And he's in Rome. His time is short. The Spirit prompts him to write to the church, scattered Not something new, but just to remind them of what they knew, those precious and magnificent promises they had heard. Peter, this eyewitness of majesty, now gives us the purpose for his whole epistle in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to finish up the chapter, reading verses 12 through 21. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Even though you already know them 
and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance that was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity now to gather as part of our worship to study your word. Now we ask that you would speak. And Lord, that we would listen. Apply these truths to our heart. May we walk in them. Turn us all towards the cross of Christ today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Peter is reminding us here that the truth of God's power to save men through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is no human invention. This truth rests on eyewitness testimony confirmed by the prophecy of Scripture. So the message for you and I this morning is that we cannot afford to forget what Peter knew. We must remember and we must believe. So Peter responds to three key questions in this text that I want us to study this morning. How could we forget Why should we believe and what gives us confidence? We'll begin there in verses 12 through 15 with answering the question, how could we forget? Peter knows something that his readers cannot afford to forget. He has spoken of these things over and over again in previous verses. He speaks of uh, that Christ has called believers not just to salvation but to sanctification. To add to our faith. He says add qualities to your faith. Qualities like moral excellence. Like knowledge. Like perseverance and self-control. Godliness and so on. Why must we supplement our faith? Because Peter knows that it is so easy to drift from the truth of God and from godly living. So you take the faith and you mature in the faith by adding these qualities. He says it over and over again. These qualities, these qualities. That's what he's speaking of there in the text. So Peter comes now to remind us. And he reminds us, first of all, the Lord will return. We have a responsibility to the fact that the Lord will return. And how will we be? What will we be doing when he returns? Now the false teachers are peddling lies. And they're saying, he's not coming back. This is just kind of a made-up thing. But Peter is stepping into this moment. He's writing the text. He's sending the letter to remind them, oh, he's coming. He's coming. And they were saying, he's not coming, so we have grace. We don't need to worry about the way that we live. Our grace covers our sinfulness. They were saying, we don't need 
to obey. We just need the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God becomes a cloak for our obedience. That's what the false teachers are saying. um, Peter is opposing that. He says, I will always be ready to remind you of Christ's return and of his expectation that you walk in holiness. He says, it is right for me to wake you up with this reminder. He says there at the end of the uh, the passage, verse 15, I'm committed to entrusting this truth so that when I'm gone, it'll still be coming to your mind. Why is Peter so committed to this reminder? Why is he so committed to drive this point home? Verse 14 makes it clear. Peter knows my time on this earth is short. He says my death is imminent. Now, I want you to notice how Peter speaks here of death. He calls it the laying aside of my earthly dwelling. That is a great explanation for the believer of what death is. It's a healthy way for us to consider what the end of life on this planet looks like for us. Our lives are not ending. We are simply moving locations. We're changing clothes. We're packing up. Our addresses change. And that's a real thoughtful help. Uh, I mean, real helpful thought, excuse me. It's a real thoughtful help too, but it's a real helpful thought. So that I recognize here that the way that I live on this earth matters into eternity. It's not just some do-over with, you know, reincarnation or like some video game where we just continue, pick up where we left off. it's It's more than that. It's not just starting over. Eternal life begins now. That's what he's saying here. So I will pack up here and I will move there. So the way I live here matters there. And the point that Peter is making is that his time is short. So he is committed to doing everything in his power to ensure that his influence outlasts his life. And just as a side comment to you, I would say that's a great way for you to think about the rest of the years you have left. Live in a way so that your influence for the gospel, your influence for the kingdom of heaven outlasts your life. Invest in a way so that the kingdom of God advances even when you're not here. So Peter wants to stir up by way of reminder so that even after his demise, the believers remember. And he does that. We have two epistles from him. We have good reason to believe that Mark's gospel is given to us by Peter's perspective. Because we also know that Peter and Silas, they are protégés of Peter. Excuse me, uh, Silas and uh, Mark are protégés of Peter. So he's investing in them. And so that's the way he's making sure that after he's gone, we have the reminder that we can continue, he can continue in the work of the gospel through the text, through the people. Peter wanted to ensure that God's people did not forget God's work and God did not forget God's word. He is committed to reminding the people. I was thinking, it is not always fun to listen to someone repeat themselves, right? I, I think of parenting. You know, I know that my kids get sick of hearing me say the same things, but I get sick of them doing the same things, right? So it's kind of like a back and forth relationship there. Well, Peter's being very repetitive here, and I think sometimes you could probably come to church and you could say, I feel like he just says the same thing over and over again. You probably say, I feel like I heard that before, and that other person said it better. And that may be truth. But the point that I want to say here to you is that it's okay to get a reminder. There's a lot of pressure on me not to repeat myself, I know that sometimes I'll preach from a certain text of Scripture and somebody will say, you know you preach from that, and they'll tell me the date because they wrote it in their Bibles as if I don't know. I already know. You don't have to tell me. But I'm not repeating the sermon. I'm just repeating the text, right? 
In fact, many of you, I would say, are obsessed with this idea of going deeper in the scriptures and learning something new or hearing something fresh that you had never considered before. And there's maybe a noble aspect to that, but hear me out. The spiritual problem that most of you, um, that m- the most of you will deal with is not that there is something you have not learned yet. The spiritual issue you will deal with are the things that you know that you're not putting into practice. That's why we need to be reminded of it. I don't need something new. I might just need the very basic things that I learned when I was a three-year-old in Sunday school. Sometimes the best message I need for today is just very simply, Jesus loves me, this I know. So I don't necessarily need to learn a new truth. I might just need to put into practice what I've already learned from God's word. Remembering, though, I would say to you, remembering supports godliness. When I remember... um, I grow in godliness. And this is the reason why. Our hearts are so um, easily um, made callous to things. You know, even things that are good to me. You know, like I, I take for granted a good family. I take for granted a supportive church. I take for granted the freedoms that we have in this country. All those things. I just get used to it. And I don't even take note of it. Well, it's the same way, I would say, when it comes to the truth of God's word. I'm so used to it that I don't even really think about it anymore. But when I remember, it supports the godliness that I'll live in. You know, I I remember, because this is what happens. I forget, I forget the grace that God has for me. I forget that he's told me he will never leave me nor forsake me. I forget that he says he is committed to complete the good work that he began in me. I forget that I am not my own. I am bought with a price, and so I'm to glorify God in my own body. So it's critical that I'm committed to reminding myself, to reminding one another of the spiritual truth I already know. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to be reminded. Second, I would say, is remembering stirs up passion. Peter wanted to stir up the people of God so that they would prize the gospel and not the false teaching that was being peddled Uh, by the distorters, the deceivers in the church. Third thing I would say is remembering makes me ready. It's good for us to come together. It's good for us to be reminded of the truth that we have in God's word. But it is perhaps a little better that what we are reminded of while we are here at church, we remember tomorrow morning and can put it into practice. We remember when we encounter that person and rather than thinking of them as just Somebody who's bothersome, we think of somebody that God loves, that perhaps he's strategically put me in their life right now in this moment. It's better for me to remember that, that I'm ready for service in God's kingdom. That's why it's good for me to be reminded. So Peter's committed to reminding the people, how could we forget all he's done and what he has called us to? Now, Peter knows there's real opposition out there. He knows that there is um, people that are opposing him. That's why he's responding to the false teacher. So he answers a second question. Why should we believe? Now we can assume from Peter's comment in verse 16 that the false teachers are arguing that some of what Peter and the disciples, the other apostles were saying was just this made up fairy tale stuff. They said, they just made that up. You know, they got together, they wrote it down. Sounds like the same thing that you hear today, a couple thousand years later. They just made that up. They just got together and put those things down on paper. He says, no, we didn't devise these things. He said, we are eyewitnesses of it. And they had, you know, the, the opposition has certain evidence on their side. Because they said, you know, Peter says that the Lord's returning. Well, where is he? Why has he not come yet? 
And I know some of y'all look around and you say, man, this world is really spinning out of control. Is he really coming? Has he forgotten us? Because circumstances would lead us to maybe doubt it. But Peter's saying we were eyewitnesses. It's not clearly devised tales. We were there. He plays the apostolic witness card. We were there. We saw, we heard, we experienced. And that's what we proclaim to you today. And then in verses 16 through 18, he points back to that transfiguration that we looked at in the opening. And he says, this is the foretaste. What we experienced there on that mountain is the foretaste of the coming and the glory and power of the Lord Jesus Christ in his return. We heard God speak from the cloud. We have no hesitation, no doubt in saying to you with confidence, Jesus is coming back. And what we're going to see Peter do throughout the rest of this epistle is keep pointing out into the distance to say, he's coming back. Jesus is coming. He will return. And he will come in all of his power and all of his glory, what I've already witnessed. And on that day, will you be ready? So Peter in this text is opposing the false teachers by offering his eyewitness report of the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, I would say to you, we may not have seen what Peter saw. We may not have had that experience of running from the boat to the shoreline to be with Jesus in that moment. But as he said in verse 1, we share the same faith. In other words, Peter's eyewitness experience, his moment of walking with Jesus did not save him any more than the faith that saves you. We are all come to God the same way. And it's by faith in the finished work of Jesus that when Jesus died, he took upon him my sins. And when he, and he gave me his righteousness. And when he rose from the grave, he gives me a hope of eternal life with God. I place my faith and trust in that. Not just in what I've seen, not just in what I've experienced, but the belief that Jesus is who he says he is and he's my only hope. All my hopes in Jesus like we sing. So how can we ever forget what we have in Jesus? Peter is committed to reminding us as he stakes his first argument on the apostolic witness. Next, he addresses the question, what gives us confidence? In verse 19, Peter points to the prophetic word. He's speaking of the scriptures. So at that time, the Old Testament. He says, the prophetic word is made more sure. Now, there's a little bit of debate about that phrase, made more sure. The, the theologians are saying, what, what, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean, some say, well, I, I won't go into the full debate because I'm running out of time. But there's a big debate about that made more sure. Is, in other words, is it more true today than it was then? Well, I believe what, what it says is that the Old Testament prophecy was truthful, totally truthful then, totally sure then. But now because of the fulfillment in Jesus, it's made even more sure. It's not more true, it was always true, but it's a little bit more sure for us because it's given us maybe a, um, a notch in the belt so we can say we see that he was faithful then, we believe he will be faithful at the other time too. But there's another point being made here, and it's this, that the eyewitnesses' experiences are one thing, but the word of God is more sure than our experience. Now, I think that a lot of times, I mean, it's the way of our world right now, <laughs> is that people put more confidence in their experience, in their feelings, than they do in truth. And I would say even within Christendom, do I trust my experiences more than I trust the truth of God's word? And there's an important point to be made here because what am I gonna do whenever I have an experience that contradicts what the word of God says? How will I handle that moment? I can tell you what Peter would say. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God speaking to him would say, you trust the word 
When you hear these other people peddling something that they're saying, but we've got a new revelation, you trust the word. It would do you well to run far away from that and towards the truth of God's word. This is what we have, is the prophetic word, and it's totally true. Now, we're going to struggle with that in the culture. Because in the culture, we're going to say experience trumps what we find here. And so when we think of scriptures, like in the very beginning of the Bible, when it says God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So when our experience says to us, well, I don't know, maybe evolution brought about through a random set of occurrences, this primitive being that evolved over hundreds, if not millions, if not more than that, billions of years to become what we are today. Am I going to trust that or am I going to trust what God's word says? Whenever he says that God created man, so that means life has value, am I going to say, well, it has value as long as I can kind of put that in certain parameters, you know, certain stage of life, certain age, maybe a certain cognitive level or a certain race, or am I going to trust God at his word? I may feel different because of my experience. Am I going to trust God's word? Or what about... That, you know, I, I don't feel like what my biology says I am with regards to gender. Am I going to take his word when he says he made them male and female? Or am I going to base it only on feelings? Here's the point as I wrap up here. The scriptures, the word of God is sure. It is what I can trust. It is certain. It's a firm foundation. I can build my life upon the truth of God's word. And that's, you know, Peter's real, the real key to this whole text, in my opinion. 12 tells us what it's about, and I think that we find here in the text what the command that we ought to take is, it would do you well to pay attention to this, is what he says. It would do you well to pay heed to the word of God. So the word of God is sure. The word of God is a shining lamp, it says. It helps us to see. It helps to show the way. Finally, Peter says the word of God is a spirit-given word. I cannot simply say, well, this is my interpretation, and what I believe to be true or feel to be true about this text is true. No, it comes only from God. The truth of God's word is in the prophecy. It's not in the interpretation. And we call this verbal plenary inspiration. God used human instruments. He allowed their personalities uh, their experiences to kind of shine through in the language. But all of it, all of it, every word they wrote down in the original manuscript is perfect, it is without error, and it captures the exact message God has for you and God has for me. So the point is this. You can trust God's word. You can be certain of the coming kingdom. In Peter's day, the veracity of God's word and the reliability of the eyewitness testimony was under attack. Sounds no different than it is today. So the application is, what are you going to believe? Are you going to believe your feelings? Are you going to believe what those in the culture might say? Or perhaps people that weave their way into the church and have a new revelation, a new spin, a new take. Or are you going to believe the word of God and the eyewitness account that we have captured here? Well, I'll tell you what I believe. God and God alone. I believe his word. And I believe that Jesus alone saves. And that's the message for us in a world that is falling apart. Trust Jesus. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust what others say. Trust Jesus as revealed to us in the scriptures. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you for the confidence we can place on the word of God. We thank you for the confidence we can have today to believe that, yes, Jesus, you'll return. So, Father, may we walk in obedience as we trust you. Now, Father, for those who are here in the room today that maybe have a decision to make, would you work in their hearts? Maybe some of them need to say yes to Jesus, follow in believer's baptism, join the church, whatever it might be. God, as we come to a time of response, whether we walk the aisle, sit in the seat, respond from home, call in, Lord, may you have your way today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The choir's gonna sing. Jesus is calling you today to follow him. You've got a decision to make. I'll be standing down front. You come to me. We'll help you make that decision. You stand as our choir sings. We all respond.